you open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I will read from verse 3, and then we'll jump down to verse 9. And Father, we do pray that we would, in fact, pant for you um, as a deer pants for the water brook. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. We'll jump down to verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now we've been looking at Paul's introduction here into the epistle for a few weeks now, and we're continuing to, to examine his prayer uh, for these believers in Colossae. For purposes of clarity, I went ahead and put an outline in your bulletin insert this morning, and hopefully received that, because it kind of helps for us to see the flow of Paul's thought process, because it clearly shows uh, why he prayed, it clearly shows what he prayed, and it shows what he desired to be answered when he prayed. And you can look at that for a moment if, if you like outlines. Some people are not outline people, others are. The outline people are the people that like the uh, uh, calendar I sent out. <laughs> you guys are probably the same people, I'm just kidding. So, anyway, verse 3, Paul begins by telling us why he was thankful when he prayed for these believers. And remember, he had never met them. Epaphras was the one who planted the church, he started the church, and Paul learned everything about the Colossian church, very likely when Epaphras and Paul were cellmates in Rome. So he begins with why he's thankful when he prayed. Under Roman numeral one with the letters A through E, I just listed the reasons why he was thankful on your outline. Uh, a, it's because of their faith in Christ. Secondly, their love for other believers. He was thankful because of the hope they had in heaven. Uh, he was thankful because the gospel they'd heard from Pastor Epaphras was bearing fruit and increasing. And then E, he had heard about how the Spirit of God had worked in them and given them a love for others, a love for other believers. And that's a lot to be thankful for. He's simply very thankful that they're in Christ. He's thankful that Christ had changed them from the inside out. And this transformation, because of Christ, was evident to the people around them. And once he explains why he's thankful when he prays, then in verse 9, he goes on to tell them what he prays for. Uh, as you look carefully at it, the entire prayer, as I said last week, can be divided up into just two petitions. We know there are just two petitions because of the word may in verse 9 and 11, and I highlighted the word may on your outline under petition 1 and petition 2. And after each petition, Paul mentions the results he desires 
to see in the lives of these people if these petitions are granted or answered. Again, we went over the first petition last week. What we discovered is that Paul was praying that these believers would simply know God and that they would obey God. And that their obedience would give them a greater desire to know God, which would in turn give them a greater desire to obey God, which would in turn give them a greater desire to know God. And that would go on throughout their whole Christian life. The passage emphasizes from beginning to end that right knowledge, full knowledge, leads to obedience. Don't ever forget it's our belief that affects our behavior. It's our doctrine that affects how we live. And when a person goes off in his belief, his behavior will follow. And when a person goes off in their behavior, his belief will follow. It's really why Paul told Timothy as a pastor to pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Another translation says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in these things. For as you do, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for your hearers. And of course, the converse of that is if you don't watch your life in doctrine, then you'll shipwreck your faith and you'll also shipwreck the faith of others. Now remember, the reason why Paul spent so much time here, and I've said this almost every week, is he's, he's refuting the false teaching that come into the church. In this church, there was a blending, I've said, of human tradition and Old Testament rituals and Greek philosophy and the idea that self-denial will make you holy and kind of a hyper-spiritual asceticism that these believers were embracing. And, and Paul will eventually account encounter these, these false teachings face-to-face, but he starts by praying for these believers. He'll deal with the teaching later. And he is going to deal with this by demonstrating that Jesus Christ is above all rule, all power, all authority, and the church, and that he's the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in him, meaning that he's God, and he's sufficient for all things. He's preeminent in all things. That's where Paul's going, but prayer is just a precursor. Now, I said last week that it really wasn't very fair for me not to preach two sermons. I shouldn't have stopped after the first petition. And the reason it isn't fair is because Paul's Praying in the second petition is what we need to accomplish the first petition. He says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And like the first petition, there's specific results he desires when he sees this answered. You can see them in verses 11 and 12. He wants them to have endurance. He wants them to have patience. And he wants them to be able to express thankful joy to the Heavenly Father. And what we're going to discover as we look more carefully at this passage is that we simply need God's power to live the Christian life. Now, that sounds very simple, but I want to say it again. We need God's power to live the Christian life. We know this because the word strengthen means to cause or enable someone to have the ability to do or to experience something. What it means is that the recipient of the power doesn't have the power, but he receives it outside of himself. That is so important in regards to this verse. The recipient of the power, you and I, doesn't, we don't have the power. We receive it outside of ourselves. Hold your place in Colossians, and I want you to open your Bible to Hebrews 11 for a minute. Hebrews 11. I'm going to see how this word used in this passage. Most of you are aware that Hebrews 11 
gives a history of many Old Testament saints who, who demonstrated faith in God and faith in his promises. In Hebrews 11, I'll read from verse 32. The writer writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Now here comes our, our word power. Were made strong or powerful out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Each of these individuals will be the first to tell you that the strength they had from God was an enabling strength. They were made strong out of their weakness. They had no power in and of themselves, meaning that all they brought to the table in order to accomplish the task God gave them was simply their own weakness. And God enabled them and God gave them strength and God indeed helped them. In that phrase, strengthen with all power, back in Colossians, the words strengthen and power in Greek are actually derivatives of the word dunamis. Of course, we get our word dynamite from that. He's talking about an explosive power. He's talking about a power that can move things and create new landscapes. Yet, yet, it's a power that we do not personally possess. And when Paul prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious power, in 12 words, Paul uses the word power three times. You could almost say something like this. Powered with all power according to God's full power. Now, let me begin by stating that the dynamite power he's talking about is the power of the Holy Spirit that now resides in them. This is how we know that the power is outside of them. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word power in Romans 15 that's attributed to the Holy Spirit is the same power as our power in Colossians 1. We know the power he's asking for to be strengthened in this Colossian church is the power of the Holy Spirit because in the beginning of the letter all the way till now we know that Paul is writing to believing Christians and he makes mention in verse 8 of the love they have for one another in the Spirit. We know that these men and women have heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. They learned and were taught the gospel and they believed the gospel and the transformation that had taken place, the reason they now have faith in Christ, the reason they love one another, the reason they have a hope in heaven, the reason that they're beginning to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, the, be, the reason they're starting to please him in every respect and bear fruit in every good work is simply because the Holy Spirit now is living in them and they've been fully transformed. In fact, Paul tells us actually in Romans 8 that anyone, if the Holy Spirit does not reside in a person, then that person does not belong to God. The Holy Spirit's work in our lives is, is so important that I just want to digress for a moment and have you turn to Titus chapter 3 for a few minutes. I'm going to read Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, and I want to just explain the Holy Spirit's work in regards to salvation. Though Paul here is in the book of Colossians, he doesn't explain what I'm about to explain here in Colossians. 
Everything that's happened in the lives of these believers is a direct result of the Holy Spirit's work. It's a, it's a direct result of them being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And Titus 3 gives a fairly complete summary of the Spirit's work in salvation. And so, I mean, for the next 10 minutes, I just want everyone to pause and put your thinking caps on. Nobody fall asleep. No dozing, no drifting. Make sure the person next to you has eyes wide open. Now, it doesn't mean after 10 minutes you can fall asleep. It's just an idiom, okay? When, when, when a young wife gets pregnant, typically, at least it was back in the day 37 years ago when we had our first, uh, our first child, um, we had to go to class. We had to go to Lamaze class. And my wife had to learn how to do hee-hee breathing. And she had to learn a focal point. So she had to learn, hee hee, hee hee, and look over there. And I was the coach. And I had to bring something uh, to help her back pain and help this or that. And so I went to, brought a big pillow with a bunch of pregnant couples to learn how to breathe these Lamaze classes. And the reason why is because we knew absolutely nothing about what was going to happen in the future now that we were pregnant. Now, we only made it to one class because Deb had Courtney six weeks early. And so we didn't even pass the class. But we were there. And why? Because we knew nothing about childbirth, and it was supposed to be helpful for us to learn. What we're about to go over takes place not when someone's just born physically into the world. Rather, what we're going to look at here in Titus 3 is what takes place internally when someone's born again or born into the family of God. Uh, you may or may not have ever heard this presented in the way I'm going to present it, but there's a work of God in salvation that when you understand it, it'll move you to give all praise and all glory to our great God and Father. And it's going to tie back into Colossians 1, though it's laid out very clearly here in Titus 3. Notice in verse 3, Paul begins with their lives before they were believing Christians. We know it's before they were believing Christians because he's speaking in the past tense. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, let astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's simply describing men and women, those he's writing to, prior to them being believing Christians. And I'm certain that we should be able to say the same things about us before we were saved. This is our indictment. This is our predicament. This is men and women living apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul says here in regards to our sinful condition, elsewhere he says things like we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Elsewhere he says that we were enemies of God, alienated from God, hostile toward God and doing evil deeds against God. Here in Titus, he's simply describing the visible outworkings in our lives that confirm what is commonly called the doctrine of total depravity. He, he, states it in a, he states it in a very succinct way, but this is where he's going. The doctrine of depravity does not mean that you will do all the sin you're capable of, but it does mean that you're capable of participating in all sin. There's a, pre, a pastor in the 1600s from Scotland that used to say, the seeds of every sin known to man rest within my soul. Uh, he said that. I will say that about this pastor, and I'm certainly you can say that about yourselves as well. The seeds of every sin known to man 
rests within our souls. We know that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they, they are the figureheads of the whole human race, and so their sin and disobedience was passed down to us. So we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in us. And because we're sinners, we're under God's just wrath and just condemnation. Unable to ever appease him, unable to ever make ourselves right with him in our own strength and power, this simply is our predicament. And then notice verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That is such an important verse, isn't it? It tells us what does not save us. It tells us what saves us. And it tells us who saves us. The who is the easiest one. Verse 5, right? He, or God, saves us. Salvation, being brought from death to life, from darkness to light, is a work of God. And it is not, he says, according to any works done in righteousness. We don't have enough works of righteousness that would be accepted by a holy God. We don't merit salvation. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God. So what does save us then? Or what is the reason why anyone is saved? Paul states that too. It's according to God's own mercy. God's mercy is his gracious, gracious faithfulness and loving kindness that brings undeserving sinners into his kingdom, into his family, into his heaven. And apart from his saving mercy, nobody would ever be brought into his kingdom. Because of the sin that indwells us, none of us, none of us have the ability to choose him. None of us have the ability to reach out to him. And because of his infinite holiness, he demands that all sin and all sinners must be punished. You see, the moment sin came into the world, all human hearts from that point on became wicked and deceitful. So there's no ability in us to ever choose God. This is why Paul states in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one, and nobody seeks God. It's mercy. And Paul uses the word mercy here, taking us back to verse 4 when he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. God our Savior appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay a debt that we couldn't pay, to give us a righteousness that we do not deserve and be saved from the wrath that's against us. Mercy is God giving us what we do not deserve. So simply put, the verse is saying we are saved by God, not by ourselves, and it's a count on his mercy. But then he goes on and he tells Titus about the inner workings of salvation in the middle of verse 5. He shows that God's mercies demonstrated, quote, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, this is so important. Put your thinking caps back on and no drifting. The, the spiritual work of regeneration begins with God removing our hard, rebellious, stony heart that has no interest in him, that is unable to choose him or seek him. And in God's sovereign mercy, 
He changes our hearts in, in this process of washing, of regeneration. The Bible says he gives us a heart of flesh or a pliable heart. Ezekiel 11, 9 describes it this way. And I'll give them one heart and a new spirit, and I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from them and give them a heart of flesh. See, that's the work of mercy. It's a work that's done inside of us. But it's not by self-effort. It's not done by merit or goodness. This work of mercy is done in our hearts solely because of God's sovereign grace. It's a work of God that there's nothing that you and I can do to make happen. In a very real sense, what many of the theologians will tell you is that you had nothing to do with your first birth. I mean, you had no say in it. And you have nothing to do with your new birth and regeneration. God and his divine mercy and grace supernaturally brought you out of your dead state to new life in Christ. In your bulletin, I put a quote from a Scottish pastor, Eric Alexander. <coughs> he explains regeneration in such a great way that I thought you could read it for yourself. It's in your bulletin, not the insert. He says, regeneration deals with two things. One, the pollution of our nature. And two, the perversity of our wills. God implants a spirit of obedience to give us a new heart. And he grants us cleansing to take away our defilement. The essence of the new birth is this supernatural work of grace effected by the Holy Spirit. A work akin to new creation of new life. And it has this double character of cleansing and renewal. In order to deal with our nature and our will, God implants. He implants a spirit of obedience to give us a new heart. And it is supernatural. In a different passage, in John 3, Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, said that unless someone is born again, which is the same word for regenerated, unless someone's born again, or who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of God. There's, this is no light matter. Not one human being that has ever lived will be accepted into the kingdom of God if he's not regenerated, if he's not born again, if he's not made new in Christ by the Holy Spirit. You see, by removing your heart of stone and by giving you a soft heart of flesh, this accomplishes exactly what Paul states here. This is the washing. This is the regeneration. This is the renewal that, that reflect the brand new life we have in Christ. You know, God is not refabricating people. He, he's not sending us back through the assembly line and just polishing us up and, and making us look a little bit better. No, he's taking dead people and bringing them to new life. He's making new creatures in Christ. The washing of regeneration and renewal is literally bringing us back to a similar condition as Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, fellowshiping with their Creator before sin came into the world. The actual definition of regeneration is this. It's to experience a complete change in one's way of life to what it should be with the implication of return to a former state or relation and with a new heart we are now able to obey God. 
With a new heart, we're now able to seek God. With a new heart, we're now able to love God. And with a new heart, we're now able to have faith in the provision of his dear son. And when you go back to verse 6 in Titus 3, you see this even more clearly, that the work of regeneration is a sovereign work because he states, whom he, that's God, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember, it's not because of our works, of our own righteousness. He pours out the blessing of regeneration and renewal because of his mercy upon us through Christ, living and dying and rising again on our behalf. And then he closes out verse 7, literally with a summary statement of everything he's just said. He says in verse 7, So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. The word so that is like the word therefore. It's a concluding summary statement of all that's been said. The word justified, it means counted righteous. It means declared righteous. It's a judicial term. It means to be declared not guilty. In our case, we who are guilty are declared not guilty. We are pardoned. But our pardon is not like a presidential pardon where a person can be pardoned and set free without anyone finishing the sentence. No one pays for the sentence when a president pardons someone. Nobody takes the guilt of the one who's pardoned. But because God's holy, our sentence has to be carried out. So we are justified or declared not guilty because Jesus serves our sentence. He took the punishment we deserve. He bore the wrath that was reserved for us. He died in our place, took on all of our guilt and all of our sin. And our justification or being counted righteous is a result of our faith in his substitutionary sacrificial atonement. And the reason that we have faith and believe and trust and his atoning death is because of the new heart of flesh we receive from God to give us the grace to believe. So the only thing that you bring to the table for salvation is your sin. You don't bring your works. You don't bring your good deeds. You don't bring your religious exercises. Some of you young people need to understand you don't bring your family background. You're not brought into the family just because your parents are in the family. It's a, it's a decision that you have to make in and of yourself. Like the hymn writer, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. I am foul and to your fountain I fly. It's wash me, Savior, or I die. When Eric Alexander said this is a supernatural work, he was right. Being saved, becoming a Christian, believing that Jesus is the only Savior for your sin includes this, this mysterious work of regeneration and renewal, which gives you the ability to hear the word of God and have faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It's what gives you the ability to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You know, if you really thought about your salvation, you have to think 
It may have been that some Monday passed, you had no interest in God and no interest in Christ and no interest in eternity and no interest in salvation. And then suddenly on a rainy Friday, the lights completely turned on and you trusted Christ to save you. It's because he regenerated your hard heart and he gave you the grace and the faith to believe. It's because of God in his infinite mercy and abundant loving kindness that he does this. So that the only thing that we can say at the end of the day when it comes to our salvation is similar to the song we sing, Jesus, thank you for pouring out your mercy on me, a hopelessly lost sinner. And the Holy Spirit who regenerated you will continue to work in and through you and you'll, he'll never leave you or forsake you. Now, I, I need to move on, but I, after I've been in, in Titus, I almost want to stay here. You can't miss the fact in these few verses that God is called our Savior in verse 4. The Spirit regenerates us in verse 5. And Jesus is our Savior in verse 6. Our salvation is a miraculous event with all three persons in the Godhead participating. It's a Trinitarian event. All the Godhead takes part. And now, with the third person in the Trinity living in us, we now have the power that helps us in our weakness. Are you a spirit-filled Christian? Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? As we go back to Colossians 1, we'll see how this ties back in. Colossians 1, we're back to Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers that they'd be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. My first point was that the power he was talking about here is power of the Holy Spirit that lives in them because of this regenerating work of the Spirit. It's a power that's in them that didn't exist prior to them being believing Christians. But listen carefully. He's not asking God to give them more than they already have. This really is a direct attack on the false teachers who are trying to tell them you need more than Christ. Christ is not enough. No, he, he, he's praying not they'd have something new. Rather, he's praying that they would learn to depend on what they already have in Christ. And what they have in Christ is powerful. You know, when Jesus told the disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. This power is the same word power that Paul is praying that these men would be strengthened with. It's the power that Jesus possesses to rule over all of heaven and earth. This is why Paul goes on to describe this power as according to God's glorious might. That word is never used to describe human power. The power he's describing that we need to be strengthened is, is the power of God. We do possess it because the Spirit of God lives in us. You know, the power of His glorious might is seen all over Scripture. But three places in particular, from Genesis to Revelation, the three most significant displays of His power have to be in creation, in redemption, and in the resurrection. You see it in creation in Psalm 19 when we know the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. God's power, his glorious might is self-evident every time you step outside. Every snowflake, every leaf that changes color, 
every time the sun rises and sets, every time that you look at the stars, each of these are reflections of God's glorious might. You also see this in redemption when, when Moses parted the Red Sea. He redeemed, God redeemed the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. In the song that Moses wrote and they sang after they walked through dry land and were rescued, he wrote this, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God's glory and his power was manifested when he delivered the Israelites from bondage. The redemption of Old Testament Israel points to the redemption in the New Testament that we have of Christ. And this too is a manifestation of his power. And then thirdly, we see the manifestation of his power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The power of the resurrection can never be overstated because there too, all three persons in the Godhead were involved. In Acts 5.30, we're told that God raised Jesus from the dead. In Romans 8.11, we're told the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus told the Pharisees that I lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. Again, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working together in almighty power for Jesus to conquer death and conquer the grave and rise to new life. So we have creation and redemption and the resurrection are three things that are literally a hallmarks of God's glorious might. Nothing compares to those three demonstrations of power. And what I'm getting at is that Paul is praying that these Colossians will be strengthened with creation power, that they'll be strengthened with redemption power, that they'll be strengthened with resurrection power. He's praying that they'll be filled with a power that is according to God's glorious might. And it's something that came from outside. It now resides in them. They are weak. They are needy. And they need to learn by God's grace how to grow in and learn more about the power they possess. And a big part of this, very simply, a big part of us accessing the very power we already have is to simply have a bigger view of God, to have a higher view of God, to have more of an understanding of who He is and what He's done. Years ago, my, my daughter was the one who taught us this song. I love to sing with my grandkids. I might even get emotional singing it because I haven't sung with them for a long time. But it's so simple. My, my God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars in the sky are His too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. But I learned a second verse in Ethiopia at an orphanage. He made the trees, he made the seas, he made the elephants too. Woo! My God is so big, 
So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. But you can't miss the last phrase. For you and you and you and you. We need to know God. We need to sing that to one another. We need to talk to each other about who he is and what he's done. The higher view of God we have, of his person, of his work, of his attributes, then the more we'll see the results that Paul's looking for here in this prayer as it's worked out in their lives. Paul's prayer to be strengthened with power goes backwards in our text to give the supply for what he already mentioned, but it goes forward the text to give us what we need. We need endurance. We need patience. And we need to be giving joyful thanks. These two words are really interesting, strength, endurance, and patience. What's interesting is they have similar meanings, but they're used in different situations. Endurance has the idea of patience, but this one is patience with people. The man or woman with this kind of patience or endurance is not easily provoked by others. Barclay writes, This is the quality of mind and heart which enables a man to so bear with people that their unpleasantness and maliciousness and cruelty will not drive him to bitterness. That their unteachableness will not drive them to despair. Their folly will not drive them to irritation. And their unloveliness will not alter their love. Now, you all know that we live shoulder to shoulder with sinners. Some are believers, some are not believers, but we're all sinners. Do you honestly think that you have the capacity in you to love your enemies? Do you honestly think that you have the capacity in you to pray for those who persecute you? Do you honestly think that you have it in you to to be kind to those who mistreat you? I'll go on record for all of us that responding this way to others who sin against us, who mistreat us, who slander us, who gossip about us, who may ruin or distort our reputations, I'll go on record to say that we do not have the capacity to endure these things. So we need his strength. We need the power of God to help us. But let me make it more practical. I need the power to love people who I'm closest to. I need the power of God to help me love my wife. It's not because she's not lovable. If you know my wife, she's extremely lovable. She's really a peach. But I love myself. I'm completely self-centered, and I'm completely self-absorbed. When we had kids at home, we raised four children. And like many of you who are in the throes of that right now, I mean, for about 15 years, it seems like, you are just busy, busy, busy. Soccer, basketball, baseball, football, trying to make a living, trying to take care of your house, choir, music, dance, church. When I used to come home from work, I didn't want to love my wife and my children. I wanted to sit in my chair. I didn't want to serve them. I want to go back to the beaver cleaver days. I wanted her to serve me. I worked my 10 or 12 hours. What about me? What about me? It got to the point, I heard someone else say this, and it was excellent advice. 
that I would pause on my drive home and just pull over. And I would pray something like this. Father, arriving home is not the end of my day. It's actually the beginning of my day. You've placed me here to lead this family, to serve this family, to serve my wife and children. I have no strength. I have no power. Please help me. Strengthen me with your power. Why? Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And we need his power. The second word is patience. Verse 11 has a similar meaning. This word has to do, however, with personal circumstances and trials, not people. It's just an acknowledgement that we live in a sin-cursed world. You know, some of our trials are self-induced. Sometimes we make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences. Some of our trials are just the normal, natural consequences of life. Illness, losing loved ones, job loss, trials within our family. And some of our trials are completely outside of ourselves. Makes me think of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers or Daniel being taken captive, or what we learned about in Sunday school uh, a month or so ago with Job. We face these kinds of trials that come because we're not in our final kingdom. We're not in our final home. We face these trials because everything in life has been ravaged by sin. And as believers, we are not immune from its consequences. We all know that one phone call can turn your entire world and your entire life upside down for years or for the rest of your life. How do we exhibit patience under these trials? Well, that first petition is to be filled with the knowledge of God and His will. And that second petition is to be strengthened with power. And they come together perfectly. We simply need a greater understanding of who God is, what he's done, and we need to pray for his divine help in all we do. It takes us right back to the children's song, that my God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for me and for you. We ask for the power. Lord, give me the power you demonstrated in creation. Give me the power you demonstrated in redemption. God, give me the power you demonstrated in the resurrection. He promises it. Fill us. Help us. Give us the strength because you're living in and through us. Beloved, we need God. So your first go-to when struggling with people is to God in prayer for strength. And when you're dealing with difficulties causing anguish of soul like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You run to God for strength. He has everything, everything that we need for life and godliness. And then Paul concludes with, I think, as of right now, is probably one of my favorite phrases in the book of Colossians. He ends up saying, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, some translations say, joyously giving thanks. And in the original, the joy goes with the word thanksgiving, and that's how I'm taking it. Now, let's not forget what we went over. We're sinners, alienated from God, hostile toward God, under the sentence of death and living in darkness. No ability to come to Him. 
No righteousness of our own to appease Him. And no hope in and of ourselves to ever be in His kingdom. So as sinners, we are not qualified to come into His presence. And because we're not born in His family at birth, we don't have any claim on any of His inheritance at all. And and we're not saints either. Do you know what it's like to not be qualified? You know what it's like to be disqualified? My son Jeremy, when we were on a, like a little kid's track team in, in fifth grade, all of his friends were doing the high jump. And Jeremy's a pretty good athlete, and he ran pretty fast, and he's having so much fun with all his friends as they're high jumping. Well, everybody could do the high jump on one foot and go over their back except him. When he ran up there, he did it off of two feet. And because they were young, a few of the judges said nothing about it. And he's having so much fun. And then all of a sudden, a judge saw him do it, even though he got over the bar, and he used the word disqualified. And to this day, I still remember his face. He had his face in his hands, and he was crying, and he was very upset because all of his friends were doing something that he couldn't do because he was thoroughly and completely disqualified. You apply for a job, you don't have the right degree. You apply for the job, you don't have the right experience. You don't know the right people. You're not qualified. It's like a big red stamp just placed on your forehead. Disqualified. It's, it's the same as when kids choose sides. You remember that for, for uh, uh, kickball or baseball or whatever? And maybe you remember that you're always the last one standing. You know, everyone got picked but you. You and that kid over there that, 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 uh, that you always thought that you were a little bit better than, than they were, but maybe they were better than you, but... Sometimes you just weren't even chosen. You just don't qualify. And of course, you have no claim here on any inheritance because not being qualified means you're outside of the family of God. See, our depravity and our sin and and our, our nature that we inherited from Adam means we are not qualified to be in God's presence or live in His kingdom. And yet, and yet, Because of the creative, redemptive, resurrection power of God. Because of the mysterious washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You who are not qualified are now qualified. You who didn't have an inheritance now have an inheritance. You, undeserving, unmerited, unqualified. He qualified you. And now you share in the marvelous inheritance of the saints in light. So what can you do except to offer joyful thanksgiving to our wonderful Heavenly Father who's taken you as disqualified as you are and He made you part of His family and He made you part of His kingdom and brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we share in His kingdom. As we do, we have that promise of both abundant life on earth, that he supplies the power to live, and then eternal life in heaven where we can be with him forever. And it's the hope of that eternal inheritance that does give us the strength to endure the people that sin against us, that helps us to endure the circumstances that derail us, because it always reminds us, no matter where we are, that something in the future is better. Something's coming. His kingdom is around the corner. My encouragement to you is to pray in your prayer life. Pray for me and pray for each other. 
that we might know God, that we might obey God, that we might experience the creative and the redemptive and the resurrection power of God and live for him in humble gratitude to him. And I think all of this will be put together as we close and are mindful of how deep the Father's love for us really is as we close in song. Let's pray.